Why don't you go ahead and open up to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. So this morning we're going to finish what we started last week. Last week we talked about the freedom found in Jesus Christ. And we covered, we basically looked at verses two or verses 6 through 16 of chapter 2. Today we're going to move from 16 down to 23. And so... As I mentioned in the introduction from last week, one of the common themes found in the scriptures is this idea of freedom. And so we see the freedom from oppression, which you look at something like the Exodus or the Jews being returned from captivity in Babylon. We see that God is somebody who rescues those who are in oppression. He gives them freedom from that oppression. We also know that in the scriptures there's there's the theme of freedom from sin. Um, every human being is born into a sinful shell, a sinful tent, and ultimately Jesus Christ provides freedom from that sin, freedom from the penalty of sin. So we see that theme. But then there's also this theme of freedom from religion. And what I mean by that is, Peter talked about freedom, or uh, religion being a yoke, much like a yoke put on a beast of burden and religion can be a yoke meaning with its rights and its rules and oftentimes people try to live by those rules and regulations they become enslaved to them and so one of the things that we find um, displayed quite clearly in the New Testament is freedom from those religious practices and things that bind us and in fact the biggest one is freedom from the tenets of the Old Testament law And we remember the story when the Gentiles received the gospel and um, received the Holy Spirit. And uh, some Jews didn't like that because they thought they should have to do the things of the law. And so they began to challenge Paul and Barnabas. And they didn't like their response that no Gentiles shouldn't be bound by those things. And so they made them go to Jerusalem. And you remember the discussion they had there where the Jews and the Pharisees and others were demanding that in order to be saved, those Gentiles had to obey all the tenets of the Old Testament law. They had to be circumcised and celebrate all the the rules. And Peter's response was, why would we put this yoke upon them when we ourselves couldn't bear that yoke? We've all been saved by faith. And so that's one of the things that comes out clearly in the New Testament is we don't have to be bound by those religious practices anymore. We have more freedom now to use our conscience and other things to worship the way that we choose to worship. Now, there are certain things, obviously, the Bible would condemn, and there are boundaries, but we have freedom to worship Christ, to worship God now, with our conscience. And we actually are not supposed to pursue God through those religious practices, meaning we don't have to go get circumcised we don't have to do this or have to do that in order to encounter God and so this letter to the Colossians Paul is challenging them because they were beginning to fall prey to those things Um, even though the Colossians had placed their faith in Jesus Christ they had been freed from the yoke of the religious practices of not just the Old Testament law but the Greco-Roman things because the Greco-Roman culture was very religious and they did all sorts of things as they would try to acquire knowledge of God or experience God in some form or fashion. They did a lot of things to try to overcome the sin of the flesh. 
And so Paul is trying to challenge the Colossians here because they had come to faith in Christ and were freed up from all of those things, but it appears that they were on the cusp of returning to many of those things. Now, they weren't as far along as the Galatians were, and we talked about that briefly, that the Galatians were now fully involved with legalism and the law and everything else, and Paul says, you've abandoned the gospel for another gospel, which really isn't a gospel. And he uses some very harsh language in talking to them. And the the language of the Colossians here is much gentler, but nonetheless, Paul is concerned because they were beginning to abandon what I have phrased as faith alone in Christ or the all-sufficiency of Christ. And they were trying to add to Christ or add to their faith all of these other things. They were returning back to some of these practices. So, to counteract that, Paul did, for, did a few things. First, he challenged them to maintain their freedom in Christ by continuing to walk by faith in Him just as they had received Him. He calls them back. Remember what it was like. Remember how you received Him. You received Him purely in faith. Continue to walk in Him in that same faith. They had been firmly rooted in Him. They had been built up and established in Him. And they had even been overflowing in gratitude. I remember when I got saved. The freedom I felt. I didn't have to pursue Christ through my Catholic faith or my, of the, the practices of the Catholic Church, and I felt freed up from that. About six months to a year later, I began to struggle with my assurance of salvation, wondering if I needed those things to keep my salvation. And what freed me from that and convinced me that, no, I didn't need that, was the insurances I found in faith in Christ and faith in Him alone. And so Paul challenges them that says that they maintain their freedom by continuing to walk in him by faith and faith alone, just as they had received him. Second thing he did was he challenged them to maintain their freedom by not being deceived and led astray from the all-sufficiency of Christ himself. All the things that they had in him. Paul warned them not to be taken captive again by philosophy and empty deception, which was based on the traditions of men and the elementary principles or principalities even of the world, rather than, he says, according to Christ. He reminded them that the fullness of God dwells in Jesus Christ in flesh, and because of that, them being in him, they were now complete in him. They didn't need anything more than Christ. Because they were made full, filled up with him, had become partakers of God's divine nature. In fact, we went through a couple of passages where the scriptures say that we become partakers of Christ, partakers of the Holy Spirit, and partakers of God. All three. They had been circumcised, it says, and crucified with Christ. The body of sin had been removed, deadened in some respects. They weren't to be held captive by their flesh and by sin. They had been baptized and made a life, made alive, raised up with Christ, he says. And Jesus had disarmed the principalities and the powers of darkness. All of those they had now in Christ. And so to maintain their freedom in Christ, they couldn't be drawn away from those things that I just mentioned. They couldn't be deceived into thinking, no, you're not really full. You're not really complete in Christ. You've not really been made alive. There are other things. And so Paul says the second thing to maintain their freedom is to not become deceived, not to buy into those things. Finally, today we're going to see how he challenged them to maintain their freedom by rejecting legalism and a false form of humility and holiness. So he's going to challenge them today to maintain their freedom by rejecting legalism and false forms of humility and holiness. The outline for today is going to be this. He warns the Colossians not to allow anyone to judge them in accordance to legalistic standards and practices. 
Don't allow others to judge you with their legalism, their practices. Second thing he does is he warns them not to allow anyone who delights in false humility and these mystical practices to defraud them of their prize. Third thing he does, he warns them not to subject themselves to rule-based living. In other words, coming up with a whole list of rules that they have to do, hoops they have to jump through, and make that their religious faith. So we're going to look at those three things today. Let's look at the first one. Paul warned the Colossians not to allow anyone to judge them according to their own legalistic standards or practices. Look at verses 16 and 17 from chapter 2. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Now, most translations render this verse appropriately as a command. The New American Standard says it this way, Therefore, no one is to act as your judge, but more properly, that's a command. It should really be translated, Let no one judge you in food or drink. Most translations translate it that way. It's an imperative. And so he basically says, don't let others judge you. Don't let them put this burden on you based on their, their own practices. The things Paul describes here are variations of Old Testament food laws and probably a mix of some Greco-Roman things too because the Greco-Romans also had food laws. They also had certain holidays that they would celebrate. And so when Paul mentions here these... Um, Things that, you know, like the the Sabbath day or the new moon or the festival or food and drink. It's probably a mix of Old Testament things, but also these Greco-Roman religious practices. Apparently, some of the Colossian church believed these things were necessary, either for salvation or maybe not for salvation, but to mature and to grow in their relationship. There was more to know about God. So again, it may have been some like the Jews who had said, no, you can't even be saved without the law. That's possible. But another possibility is they were saying, oh, no, 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 Jesus can save you. But if you really want to grow, if you really want to know more, if you really want to have a better experience, if you really want to feel more spiritual, these things will help. So they are essentially legalistic practices, which means things added to the finished work of Christ. And that's the, goal, that's the point. Legalism is anything you do to add to the finished work of Christ. Oh, I have to take communion. Oh, I have to be baptized to be saved. Or I have to pray at this time, every day, in this way, in order to grow or mature or whatever. That's legalism. You're adding to the finished work of Christ and, re- and, and rejecting this idea that, no, you have been made complete in Him. The Old Testament law did require Israel to observe certain food laws and to celebrate certain holidays as part of their covenant with God. But these ceremonial things are no longer binding on those of us in Christ. There was a reason for those things, and it had nothing to do with making them perfect or making them right before God. It was a tutor, Paul says, to lead them to Christ. But even God himself says in the Old Testament, I I don't want your sacrifices. What I want is for you to love me with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. Turn to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, verse 23. But before faith came, meaning Old Testament, we were kept in custody under the law, the Old Testament law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. What he meant by that is, you lived your life by the law in some respects. 
It controlled what you did and did not do. They were obligated to follow it. Verse 24, Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us, where? To Christ, so that we may be justified, what? By faith? Not by the law. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. We've been freed up from those requirements of the Old Testament law. Because it was simply to be a tutor that would lead us to Christ. Listen to what Hebrews chapter 10 verse 1 says. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices which they continually offer year by year make perfect those who draw near. What the author of Hebrews says, and it's a very Hebrew book, it's written to to Hebrews, to Jews, the author says, the law was simply a shadow. It wasn't the substance. It was simply a tutor. Those practices, those things you find in the law, could never make somebody perfect, even though they were offered time and time and time again. They still could not make you perfect. Paul uses similar language in verse 17 of chapter 2. We'll just look at this real quickly. But if, while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, if, I'm sorry, wait a minute, I've got to turn to Colossians chapter 2, verse 17. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come. In other words, the Sabbath day, the food laws, celebrating this day over that day, or this holiday over that day, verse 17, those things, they're a mere shadow of what is to come. A symbol, if you will. But the substance is, or the substance belongs to Christ. So observing food laws and religious days, religious practices, or some man-made variation of these things, cannot make us perfect. They can't make us more spiritual. In fact, they can't even make us more mature because they're simply a shadow, a representation, a symbol, if you will, of Christ who's the substance. He is the one that can make us perfect. Only Christ can do that. Go back to chapter 1, verse 28. This was Paul's purpose, he says. Chapter 1, verse 28 and 29. We proclaim Him, Jesus Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. Complete, mature, filled in Christ. For this purpose I also labor, striving according to his power which mightily works within me. Paul's point in continuing to preach the gospel and to teach people about Jesus Christ was because that is who made them perfect and complete. When I was in Wausau, before I went to seminary, I was exposed to homeschooling families, which convinced me I would never homeschool my kids. That didn't work out well. What was rather interesting to me is I knew many of these homeschooling families. And the longer I knew them, I began to see a pattern develop. They had become very legalistic. And this is not an assessment of all homeschooling families by any means, but this particular group within our church had become very legalistic. Got to the point where their children could no longer associate with non-homeschool children. One of the parents one time, as I spoke with them, said, children don't need other children, children only need their parents. And so some of these homeschool families would not even let their children associate with homeschool children of other families. One of them was a doctor, and he announced he was moving his family out into the country. Immediately I thought, oh, you mean to live off the grid? And it was, no, he wanted to isolate his family from the world. And he had all these rules and things that their family had to do and became very legalistic. After a short time, I saw him back at church 
So I pulled him aside and I said, thought you guys weren't coming to church anymore. What happened? And he goes, well, God chastised me. And I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, well, you know, we bought that family out in the country because we really thought that in order for our family to be holy and righteous, we had to separate ourselves from the world completely. And so the best way to do that was to move out into the country and to be away from all the things of the world. And I said, so what do you mean God chastised you? He said, it almost broke us as a family because our other house couldn't sell and because we bought a second house, we were making payments on both and it got to the point where we couldn't do both and I began to realize that I had made a huge mistake and that God was chastising me. I'm supposed to be in the world, just not of the world and this legalistic stuff I got my family involved with, I had to repent of. And so in talking to him, it was interesting because he talked about the burden the yoke that that stuff had put on him and his family. And he began to realize, we've got freedom in Christ. And for some reason, they had gotten drawn away in almost this cult within our church. And like I said, my impression of homeschooling at that time was, wow, (laughs) these people are nuts. And I became one of those people. Meaning we homeschooled our kids. Thank God I learned that that's not a homeschooling thing necessarily. But my point in bringing that up is he learned that these rules and these regulations, this burden, this yoke of religion that they had begun to live as a family was burdensome. They no longer had the joy and the freedom that Christ expected them to have. And it didn't make them any more complete. It didn't make them any more spiritual. It didn't make them any more godly by doing those things. Now, this doesn't mean that things like fasting or celebrating religious holidays has no value at all. It's not at all what I'm trying to say. In fact, we find positive examples of such things in the scriptures. Um, Jesus fasted at times. We know that. We see that in the Gospels. Jesus would take time to be alone by himself and would pray and he would fast. Um, Turn to Acts chapter 13. We're going to look at a couple of these examples, too, of the early church. Acts chapter 13. Jump down to verses 2 and 3. Well, we'll start in verse 1. Now there was at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul, while they were ministering to the Lord, what? And fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. Then... After they had fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. And so we have these believers early on in the church were praying and fasting, ministering to the Lord through that, when the Spirit spoke to them and directed them to set aside Paul and Barnabas. It's a pattern Paul and Barnabas seemed to follow when they appointed elders. Look at Acts chapter 14, verse 21. After they had preached the gospel to that city, they had made disciples, or made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. When they had appointed elders for them in the early church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And so Paul and Barnabas apparently would pray and fast before they would choose men in the, in the church to serve as elders. What about Acts chapter 20, verse 16? Paul celebrated some religious holidays, even a Jewish holiday in many respects. Acts chapter 20, verse 16. 
For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if possible, why? On the day of Pentecost. We also see in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 8, another reference to Paul wanting to celebrate the Pentecost. It was a Jewish holiday. So Paul desired to celebrate that. You don't have to turn here, but finally in Romans 14, we'll see this a little bit later, we'll jump into the passage, Paul refers to Christians regarding one day over another, meaning some of the Christians celebrated religious holidays, maybe celebrated church on Sunday, or maybe they chose a different day to celebrate. He talks about some choosing certain foods over other foods, or eating or drinking certain things and not eating other things. But he says that each one of us did this for the Lord, and he does not condemn it. He says, let each one do in his own conscience what he feels right. And we'll see in a moment that he says not to judge them for that, one way or the other. And so we have these examples in the New Testament of things like fasting, celebrating religious holidays, meaning that they're not wrong, or that they don't have any value or purpose. Clearly Paul saw a value in celebrating Pentecost. He saw a value in praying and fasting before they chose elders. The difference between what Paul is describing there and what the New Testament shows is pretty much that they were not doing them to seek justifying themselves before the Lord. They weren't just these rote religious practices that they somehow thought they needed to do to gain God's favor and approval. They were expressions of their faith and trust in the Lord. And there can be value in that. If you feel as though you've got an important decision coming up and you want to pray and you want to fast so that you can focus your mind on that and not be distracted by eating or other things, that's your prerogative to do it. And there may be value in that. We celebrate Christmas. We celebrate Easter. There is value in that because they serve as symbols and remind us of what Christ did. Now, if we were to celebrate Christmas because somehow we felt as though not going to church on Sunday morning, which we don't usually do as a church, by the way, that it's sin... And we have to attend on Sunday morning or on Christmas or we have to go and attend our Good Friday service. If we make that somehow now some rule or religious right that we have to do to gain God's favor, that's legalism. There's no value in that. In fact, that can be very dangerous. We get together on Good Friday because we love to do it. We love the fellowship. We honor God by it. It reminds us of the terrible sacrifice that he had to make on our behalf. I don't think anybody here does it because somehow if we don't, we're in grave sin. Or somehow by doing it, I'm going to get some special magic blessing by God. See, that's where it becomes legalistic. And Paul was warning against these things. So basically, they were not doing them as a means to justify themselves before God or others. Second thing that we think about with that is they didn't do these things as a litmus test. You know what a litmus test is? If you don't do that, you're not saved. If you don't do that, you're not righteous and holy. What do you mean you don't get up every morning and have an hour devotion time? What do you you mean you don't get up and study from the Greek text? What do you mean you use an NIV study Bible? God forbid you're not using the King James. See, it's not a litmus test. And nowhere in the New Testament, from what we see described with Jesus fasting or Paul fasting and Barnabas fasting or, or them celebrating holidays, it's never revealed as a litmus test. And so that's the other thing we have to keep in mind. Paul makes it clear that doing that, by using these things to judge others, is inappropriate. Turn to Romans chapter 14. We're going to read a chunk. Romans chapter 14. 
follow along with me as I read this lengthy passage here, but it has a lot to say to us about this. Romans chapter 14, starting in verse 1. Now accept the one who is weak in faith. Now we would all recognize that some are stronger, more mature in their faith. We generally start out weak. When you first come to Christ, you know very little. Okay? But you're supposed to grow and mature and become stronger in your faith. And so he says, now accept the one who's weak in faith. But not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things. But he who is weak eats only vegetables. Now that's a reference probably to the fact that in Corinth or in other places, other Greek cities, they would, the Greeks would sell meat in the marketplace. So you would go to the market to get, you didn't have freezers, so you'd go to the marketplace to get your food on a regular basis, a daily basis. And so you'd buy your meat there. Well, much of that meat was sacrificed to Greek idols. And so a Christian who said, oh, I can't go do that, I can't go eat of that meat because it was sacrificed to Greek idols, well, they would eat only vegetables then. Because they didn't sacrifice vegetables. So Paul says, some only eat vegetables. They're, they're weak in their conscience. They don't understand. Because elsewhere, Paul, when he talks to the Corinthians, says, there's no such thing as other gods. And he tells them, if you want to go into the marketplace and buy the meat, don't ask him if it's been sacrificed. Just take it home and eat it. It's okay. You're not sinning. All things are permissible. But there are some who might be weaker in their faith that set up a rule I can't eat that meat. They don't understand what Paul is saying about, no, you're free to eat that meat. Just don't cause others to stumble when you do it. So he says here, some may only eat vegetables. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt to the one who does not eat, not to judge them. What? You're not eating meat? You're not very mature? He says, don't do that. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats. How dare you eat? How can you eat that meat? It's been sacrificed to idols. You're not saved if you do that. You're not spiritually mature if you do that. He says, don't do that. For God has accepted him, both the weak and the strong. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, master being Christ. And he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Let the Lord work on that. Don't judge him for that. We're not dealing with a sin issue here, but I'm sure those would see it as sin. But it's not a sin issue. Paul makes that clear when he talks to the Corinthians. One person regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. I know some who say, yeah, I can go worship on Sunday, but I worship every single day. I don't need just Sunday. And there are others who get up and do nothing during the week and only show up for worship on Sunday. That's what Paul's talking about here. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God, and he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat. And he gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that, we might be, or that he might be Lord of both the dead and of the living. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written... As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow before me. Every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each one of us will give an account to himself to God. Now you can read the rest of the chapter. He goes on. And essentially what he says is, do not judge another brother or sister based on their personal convictions of what they do and don't do. Again, he's not talking about sin. Clearly the Bible tells us to call out sin. But when it comes to these other things, I don't eat A, B, or C, or I don't do this, I don't fast. Or I do fast. We shouldn't be poking our finger at others and saying, don't do that. So basically, 
He lays out for us here that we're not to judge others, but we're not to allow others to judge us regarding those practices. So what's the takeaway for this? When we allow others to dictate what we do or don't do in regard to our relationship with Christ, based on their legalistic standards or their own personal practices, we no longer live in the freedom we have in Christ. We give up that freedom. And so really what Paul is addressing here is when we allow others to sort of determine what we do, you shouldn't be fasting, or you should be fasting. And so we cave into that. And we allow them to dictate, judge us. And so we live our life according to their rules. We allow them to pressure us into doing those things. We give up the freedom we have in Christ. Paul wrote at the end of Romans 14, The faith you have, have as your own conviction before God. That's how he ends chapter 14. The faith that you have, have it as your own, with your own convictions before God. We have the freedom to worship Christ, According to our own convictions, we just need to make sure that we don't condemn ourselves in what we do. So even though we have freedom, we have to be careful. When I go back home to Wisconsin, I'm not thrilled about going to a Catholic Mass for Christmas, but I still go. There are certain elements of it I don't participate in, like the bread and the cup, their sacrament. I don't repeat some of the rote prayers. However... I want to encourage my mom, encourage my family. We do it together. And I look at it and say, you know, if I don't go to church, what does that reveal about my faith in Christ? So, I have the freedom not to go, but I choose not to cause somebody else to stumble. So I go. And I pick what parts I'll participate in so that I don't violate my conscience or sin against the Lord by doing something I think is wrong. So we just need to make sure that we don't condemn ourselves in what we approve and what we do. I mentioned, I think last week, (laughs) Ken Hammond put a post on his Facebook page about using this company. It's not Coke, it's a Coke bottler, but it's a Christian company, largest in the nation, and they'd switched to them as their provider for products to drink. And um, some people had a problem with that because they're like, how dare you go with Coke, they're woke, you know. And he had to keep clarifying, look, we didn't, we're not partnering with Coke itself. It's a bottler who sells Coke. That Christian is a company, a Christian company. We're doing more with them than just buying products with them. And it erupted with, you know, um, people complaining about, well, I like Pepsi and I like Mountain Dew and I don't like this and whatever. And I saw one particular woman who condemned one of the guys in there because, you know, he drinks Diet Coke. And she just blasted him because... He was sinning against the Lord's temple by drinking Coke because it's got aspartame in it. And so I decided to poke the bear a little bit. And my response was, well, you know, I don't remember any passage in Scripture in the New Testament telling us that we have to live by food laws. However, I do see in Romans chapter 14 that we're not to condemn a brother or sister who does eat or not eat thinking maybe she would look at the chapter and go, yeah, I shouldn't have judged him. But instead she shot back, yeah, but that was before they started putting poison in the food. (laughs) She missed the point. You know, you're not going to hell if you drink Diet Coke. I don't like aspartame. More than enough evidence right now that aspartame is terrible for the body. Is it wise? No. Is it sin? No. So whether you drink or don't drink Diet Coke, I'm not going to condemn you one way or the other. Somehow she felt that was more than appropriate. And Paul tells us not to do it. So if I now all of a sudden say, I won't drink Diet Coke, then I'm allowing her to judge me for that. And it would be better to say, I understand. 
I won't drink Diet Coke in front of you. But if I choose to drink it in the safety of my own home, that's my prerogative. Paul moves on now and he warns the Colossians not to allow anyone who delights in false humility and these mystical religious practices to defraud them of their prize. So he moves from don't let them judge you, don't let them set the standard for how you worship and honor Christ, to don't allow anyone who delights in a false humility or mystic religious experience to defraud you of your prize. Look at verses 18 through 19. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with a growth which is from God. Now the Greek in this passage is a little bit challenging, primarily in these two two verses because it's uncertain how to translate some of the words. They're just not easy words. So in verse 28, some translations refer to being defrauded of a prize. Others translate that as basically being disqualified. So that's where the difference is. They don't know if it's really, you know, are you talking about just losing the prize? Are you talking about being disqualified from the race? I don't know that practically there's a whole lot of difference. If you get disqualified, you don't get the prize, right? Um, In this letter, Paul repeatedly likened life in Christ to a, or I'm sorry, in his letters in general, Paul likens our life in Christ to a race and encouraged running in a manner that would ensure that we would receive or win the prize. I'll just give you some quotes here from Paul. You don't have to turn these these in your Bible, but Philippians 3.14, Paul says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God, or call of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 9, he says, Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim, this is verses 26 and 27, I run in such a way as not without aim, I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body to make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. He likens it to fighting a fight, running a race. He doesn't want to do it in a way that disqualifies him. When he wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the face. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which is the Lord, or which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, not only to me, but also all who have loved his appearing. What Paul basically is telling the Colossians here is, don't let anybody defraud you of that. That's the goal. Run the race, finish the course, so that you receive the prize, the crown of righteousness that Christ will award to you on that day. Don't let somebody steal you or rob you from that. But how? There's two threats that Paul mentions here. One of them, the first, is false humility. The word that's translated there as self-abasement in the New American Standard refers to a lowliness of mind or a humility. But that's not bad. What's bad is when you delight in that. In other words, what he's really picturing here is the person who basically brags about their humility. They delight, I am so humble, I am so lowly. You know, I think about, love him or hate him, Donald Trump. I'm the most humble guy you'll ever meet. Doesn't make sense, right? You ever met somebody like that who seems to boast in the fact that they are so humble? They are so lowly. I have known people like that, I have seen people like that, and I see them on Facebook all the time where they just sort of boast, they take pride in how lowly and humble they really are. That's a false humility. That's not humility. The second threat that he mentions here 
are these false religious experiences. Notice what he says there. Verse uh, 28 again, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, verse 19. Uh, verse 18. Let me, break. Let me see here. Delighting in self-abasement, that's the false humility, and the worship of angels. Now, one of the things the Greeks were known for is by worshiping angels, they thought they could somehow enter into this angelic realm and in doing so had access to secret knowledge and experience. It was a form of almost spiritual ecstasy. They could envision their mind worshiping these angels and being worked up into this frenzy that would somehow open their mind to these magnificent spiritual truths. That is a false, mystical experience. And so Paul says, don't let these people rob you of your prize by delighting in this false humility or these mystical experiences that somehow are designed to work on the emotions and and everything else. It's interesting how these things are even found within our church today and we'll touch on that in just a minute. Notice he says in verse 19 or verse uh, 18 there, they take their stand on visions that he has seen. Inflated without cause by their fleshly mind. What he's getting at there is they are placing a tremendous amount of value, faith, and trust in these things. In many respects, it becomes their object of pursuit. They're inflated without cause in their fleshly mind. They've seen these great visions. They become puffed up with emptiness in their mind. As a result of this false humility and these false religious experiences, these individuals were no longer holding fast to Christ, their head. Verse 19 says, And not holding fast to the head, which is Christ, from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and the ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. Paul wrote, and you can turn here on your own, but Paul wrote something similar in Ephesians chapter 14, verses 15 and 16. That... We are to stay connected to the head. He is to be our pursuit because from Him we grow. Not just individually, but we grow together as the body of Christ by all staying attached to the head. Not by pursuing these other things, these other mystical experiences. So they were no longer holding fast to the head. They instead were placing their faith and trust in these mystical experiences. So what's our takeaway with this? When we allow ourselves to get sucked into a false sense of humility or these false religious or mystic experiences, we become slaves to those things and we abandon, we give up the freedom we have in Christ. I've mentioned many times the books that I've been reading on the New Apostolic Reformation, NAR. It's the movement that's behind Bethel Music and Hillsong and so many others. It's filled with false doctrine that they've gleaned through mystical experiences through their prophets and the visions they've seen, most of it highly anti-biblical. Not just unbiblical, meaning you don't find it in the scriptures, but contrary to the scriptures. Many of the experiences that they promote are things like grave soaking, which is where you go lay on the graves of dead Christians so you can soak up their anointing. It's this mystical experience. They, They go out to the graveyard and they find a Christian and they lay on that grave and they move around and they moan and they groan and somehow are soaking up the anointing of those individuals. They do something called waking up angels. 
Where they go into a place and they begin to chant and do all these other weird things and they envision seeing angels and they say that they then will manifest these angels who have been sleeping and they wake up and they see these angels and they're sometimes 20, 30 feet tall and they reveal these great wonders to them. You can see Bill Johnson's wife talk about how she's done that. Goes into places and wakes up these sleeping angels and has this weird mystical experience. You can go online and watch video where they claim gold dust is coming down from the ceiling and laying on people in their services. What's funny is there was a former individual who left, he was either Bethel or Hillsong, claiming that they were literally putting party dust in the air conditioning system to fabricate that, trying to give people a religious experience. They talk about their personal and direct revelations that they receive from God through their prophets and others. All of those are strange, weird, mystical practices that are designed to infect the emotions, make someone feel as if God is right there in their presence and doing these amazing things. I've shared examples of Hank Hanegraaff, Sarah Young, and even Richard Foster, who's behind the Celebrations of Discipline, and how they all focus on these experiences. And those experiences actually become the object of their faith and the object of their worship. I've got a friend from seminary who is involved with much of this NAR philosophy in churches. They have gone from one city to another and sought out NAR churches. And you can see in posts and other things that that is indeed what they are pursuing and it's those things that become the object of their faith, not just Christ. Now they'll say, no, it's Christ. No, it's not. It's those things and those mystical experiences. We've seen all kinds of churches today that have been teaching religious things and practices that have been drawn from Eastern mysticism and monasticism. We have churches that build labyrinths. In fact, my daughter and I were over here at Owu, right in the campus of Owu, the big labyrinth there. Seems somewhat innocent. Go walk the labyrinth and pray, but that's an Eastern mystic practice. You don't need to go walk the labyrinth to pray. There's nothing special. It's not like God hears you more if you go walk the labyrinth while you pray. Oh, look, she's praying in a labyrinth. I better pay attention. This guy's just sitting on his couch. I won't listen to him. We hear things like spiritual formation. That involve things like centering your contemplative prayer, which is where you repeat this word over and over and over in your brain and your mind to center yourself. It's not really prayer. It's just repeating a word over and over and over and over and over. Things like Lecto Divina, which is repeating Bible passages in this rhythmic fashion. It's not so much the passage, it's the rhythmic pattern you're doing over and over. And it works the audience, and we've seen this at youth conferences where it works them into this frenzy as you repeat that phrase over and over and over until they're all worked up and they're emotional. We see it with music. The emotion of so much praise and worship music where it's really the repetition of a phrase over and over and over. Why? It impacts the emotion and it makes me feel like God is there. The problem with these things is they're all false religious experience focused on emotions. They fill our heads with a false notion about what it means to be spiritual or what it means to grow. Another problem is that they become the objects of pursuit. You've got to have those things or somehow God is not there. So what do you do when you're stuck in a dungeon in prison like Paul or Silas or others and you don't have access to those types of things and you're left alone to simply pray and to meditate on the scriptures that you know, is God not there? Because you're not having that experience? No. And that's why they're false. doesn't mean that God can't move us. doesn't mean that God can't speak to us. It doesn't mean that... that 
enjoying music and getting emotional is a bad thing, but it's when that becomes the experience that we're pursuing. And Paul says that when we allow those people or those who promote those things and seem to structure the service after those things or tell us that's what it means to pursue God and if you're not experiencing those things then you're not experiencing God, Paul says it robs us of the freedom we have in Christ. It becomes a form of legalism. False humility and the pursuit of these mystical experiences. The last thing Paul does is he warns the Colossians not to subject themselves to rule-based living. Not to subject themselves to rule-based living. Look at verses 20 through 23. If you died with Christ to the elementary principles or principalities of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? which all refer to things destined to perish with use, in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Now this is similar to what Paul said in verses 16 and 17. The difference is this. When he first talked about um, similar things earlier, he was talking about don't let them judge you for not doing them and then somehow you sort of cave into that and you do it or somehow you feel guilty here he's talking about it's not about them it's you just do it yourself this is willfully motivated yourself you think you need these things and so he warns against that it's one thing to sort of say well I'm just going to do it and allow them to sort of force me into a certain way of worship or other things it's another thing to say hey I'm fully in I need these things and that's what he's addressing here. It's come full circle. So it's similar to what he says in verse 17. Here it has to do with their own willingness or desire to subject themselves to such things. Notice that he says, if you died with Christ, which that if there should be better translated since you died with Christ, it's a first class condition is what it's called in the Greek, since you've died with Christ to the elementary principle of the world, why is if you're still living in that world do you submit yourself to such things? It's a rhetorical question. Why would you do that? Since they died to Christ in these elementary principles, they shouldn't have been doing that. They were submitting themselves to things like do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Those are food laws. Maybe some other things mixed in with that. And Paul points out four truths now regarding those rules. The first is that they're temporary. He says they will perish with use. Remember the woman I mentioned about the Coke? <laughs> really? You drink it, it's gone. How is that going to impact you now spiritually? It's not like he's, you're getting toasted on you know, a six-pack of malt liquor. You're drinking a Diet Coke. It perishes with use. Second thing he says about rules like this is that they're based on the commandments and teachings of men. I can't open the scriptures and go, oh, you know what? Yeah, there it is. Don't drink Coke. The 11th commandment. Because it's got aspartame in it. Oh, interesting. It's man-made rules and regulations, it says. Third thing he says is they have the appearance of wisdom, but only in self made religion with its false humility and its severe treatment of the body. Paul may have been referring to probably a severe form of fasting here, this severe treatment of the body, that they were fasting in a pretty severe sense. That's why their body was being mistreated. I think about what this woman wrote in the Facebook post. She tried to make a good argument. You know, your body's the temple of the Lord. Therefore, you shouldn't put anything into your body that might harm your body. That sounds like a logical argument, does it not? 
my response could have been to her, you know, I'm pretty sure that I could find almost any argument that anything you're eating is bad. Oh, you drink only water? Where do you get that water from? Is that water properly filtered? Oh, you know what? You, you don't drink Diet Coke because it's got, got aspartame in it, but you drink something else that has stevia in it. But you know, there are some issues, questionable things with, with stevia. Oh, you know, you don't eat any meat. You only are a vegan. Oh, but you know what? There are some issues with being a vegan because you may not be getting all of your... See, my point is, I could come up with almost any argument that anything you eat destroys your temple. We live in a fallen world, in a fallen temple. So they may sound reasonable, they may have the appearance of wisdom, but only in self-made religion. Finally, he says they're of no value, and this is the key. They are of no value against fleshly indulgence. It appears that what the Colossians were doing is they were trying to control their flesh. How do we overcome sin? How do we not do those things we shouldn't be doing? And so they come up with this fencing. They come up with these rules and regulations that somehow is an attempt to control the flesh. But Paul says the problem with that is these things don't protect you against indulgence of the flesh. I mentioned before this old order German Baptist that I worked with back um, when I was in seminary. And how they had all their rules, they were like Amish, they had all these rules and regulations. No chrome on the bumper, you have to wear a certain hat, you couldn't have zippers, you could only have buttons, girls couldn't water ski, um, guys couldn't wear derby hats. And I told you about the conversation I had with them. I said, has any of that helped prevent sin? And his response was, nope, we just find a new way to sin. Now in his case, he didn't agree with those things. He recognized they do nothing for my faith in Christ. If anything, they become a burden around me. But he says, I submit to them because my family, I grew up in this environment, I like the community, I don't want to alienate my family, I don't want to be shunned from my family. So I do these things so I don't cause them to stumble. That's kind of what it should be. So what's the takeaway with all this? When we submit ourselves to living by religious rights, these rules, these restrictions, do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, we're no longer walking in the freedom we have in Christ. We are living by rules. We have a rule-based faith. In fact, we become slaves to those things. The Galatians had fallen prey. Go ahead and turn to Galatians. We'll wrap it up with this. The Galatians had actually fallen prey to this, which is why Paul is much more severe with them. Paul accused them of being foolish. Look at chapter 3, verse 3. He says, Are you so foolish? And this is, this is really key. Remember this phrase, if you ever struggle with this. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, that you are now being perfected by the flesh? That is, that is, that, that's right there. How can you start in faith, but now think somehow that faith isn't enough to perfect you, but instead you have to now be perfected by rules regarding the flesh you can't do it you can't start by faith and finish by works you can't say I got my salvation by faith but now I have to keep it by my own works you can't say that I was born as a new creation in Christ by faith but now somehow I have to perfect that creation by works of the flesh it cannot be done he goes on chapter 4 verses 3 through 7 so 
We also, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elementary things of the world, the law. But when the fullness of time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, redeem those of us under this yoke of slavery, or of um, religion, that he might, or that we might receive the adoption of sons, because you are sons, God sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, therefore you are no longer a slave under this yoke, of religion, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Look at chapter 4, verse 9. But now that you have come to know God, another way of saying come to know God in faith in Christ, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? He says, now that you know God, now that you've come to faith in Jesus Christ, and you know him through that faith, how in the world do you turn back to those weak and worthless religious practices, things that you desire to be enslaved by again? Why would you do that? Lastly, chapter 5, verse 1, another great verse to camp on, for it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. He's talking there again about the yoke of religious rules and rites, mystical practices, false philosophy, deceptive wisdom. What did Christ redeem us for? To set us free from those things. As Peter told the Jews and the Gentiles in Jerusalem, why should we put that burden on anyone when we ourselves could not live under that burden why would you return to that if we truly want to control the desires of our flesh if we truly want to grow and mature in Jesus Christ if we really want to see our completion in Christ be ultimately fulfilled if we ultimately want to do what the scriptures encourage us to do is to grow and mature in our relationship with Jesus Christ there's only one way to do it it isn't through allowing others to judge us by their religious standards It isn't by us being defrauded of our prize by false humility and these mystical experiences. It's not in rule-based living. It's only one way to do it. Turn to Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 26, and we'll close with this. If you want all those things, you can do all those things in the freedom you've been given in Christ. Verse 16 through 26. It's a little bit long here, but let's go ahead and read it. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another. Now that, Paul talking there about um, the desire against the spirit, the flesh, he's talking there about religious practices, not just sin. He's saying that those religious practices are in opposition to the spirit, because they're part of the flesh. So that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. You're not under this yoke of religion. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident. They're immoral, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarned you, just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Obviously he's talking there about sins of the flesh. But in the context of the letter, the other things involved with the flesh are these religious practices as well. But the spirit of the fruit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Not just the sin, but these yokes of religious practices. 
Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have been crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another, etc. Basically, what Paul says here is we are to live by the Spirit. That's what it means to have freedom in Christ. Not the rules and the regulations. We are to walk by the Spirit, not by the rules, regulations, others' opinions, mystical practices. Amen?